Hi, good morning, guys. Let's uh, flip over to Acts chapter 16. We'll get started here. Just by way of introduction, if you remember the last three weeks we spent in Acts chapter 15, and we covered the doctrine of Acts 15, that it's salvation by grace through faith, not of works. Uh, we covered the, uh, the way the church was able to... Me too, man. What are we thumbs upping? We covered the way to uh, the that you you go through problems that you have doctrinally. Uh, that remember these guys are called brothers. That they're brothers in the Lord. That that even though they have different opinions, especially about probably the most important thing to have an opinion about in the Scripture, which is how a person gets saved. That over remember eleven times in Acts chapter fifteen, the word brothers is used, and it's the Greek word for brothers and sisters. People that are in the Lord, people that are, another word the Bible uses, and actually a more used word throughout the scripture is the word saint, which has probably a different connotation for us, uh, um, but the word saint means holy one. And that's what, for the most part, the Bible uses to refer to God's people. So they're able to have this radical disagreement, but they discuss it, they debate it, they question it, they talk about it. And then James ends up writing a letter and says, hey, let's take this letter to the Gentiles. And after it's all said and done, they say, we're not going to trouble the Gentiles to follow the law. We're just going to say, hey, you should do, uh, be careful that you don't fornicate, you don't eat things sacrificed to idols, you don't drink blood, and you don't eat things uh, polluted by blood, right? That's kind of what they lay out, strangled uh, uh, animals. And the, the reason they give for that letter is not because this is the part of the law you should follow. They say, because there are followers of Moses in every city. So the reason that they write the letter to the Gentiles to follow those laws is simply because they're trying to create a unity and an ability for Jews and Greeks to coexist in the church because they have such radical differences in backgrounds and customs and culture. So we looked at that and how you deal with that. And then lastly, last week, we looked at kind of personal uh, issues. Uh, and it was kind of their irreconcilable or insurmountable uh, differences that we can have as brethren. You have Paul and, and Barnabas. Barnabas, we know his real name is Joseph. He's first seen uh, selling a piece of land to be able to donate that land to uh, basically the cause, as it were, to the church so that the church can pay for people to continue to be involved. Remember, 3,000 people get saved in Jerusalem. They don't have jobs. <laughs> they don't have food. And they want to stick around because this new movement of God is happening. And so people begin to sell things and make sure that that money gets dis distributed so that other people can be involved with what God is doing. And Barnabas, is, he gets a nickname by the apostles. He's the son of encouragement, that, that he was known for how encouraging he was to people, helping people, getting people to, to come along and to, to find the Lord and all the different you know, places he was sent and things that he did. That's who Barnabas is, right? And then we have Paul, Paul who also clearly loves Jesus, loves humanity. He says of himself, he says, every day I have the anxiety or the pressure of all the churches on my mind. That's literally the anxiety of it, that he was a man that cared so much about the churches and everybody he had met and places he had go, he had been, I should say, that it was a weight to him. He prayed for them. He cared about them. He was also the apostle that said that above all, the servant of the Lord must be found faithful. So you have these two guys. One guy is passionate for doctrine and right teaching and making sure people are discipled. And one guy who is passionate for making sure that people are encouraged and are walking with the Lord. And then you have John Mark. And John Mark, if you remember, he's the one in our first journey with Paul and Barnabas. He leaves. We don't know why he left. We don't know what happened. All we know is that it was looked at very unfavorably by Paul. That Paul, and so the, the disagreement comes when Paul goes to Barnabas and he says, Hey, look, look, let's go visit all the churches again. Let's visit every church that we've planted, everywhere we've been, and let's go encourage the brethren. And Barnabas says, I'm in. Let's do this thing. Let's get John Mark. Because Barnabas is all about the second chances. Barnabas is the one that introduced Paul to the church. He gave Paul a second chance, as it were. He says, let's grab John Mark and let's do this journey. And Paul says, no, I'm not gonna, we're not taking John Mark. I'm not going with that guy. John Mark ditched us when things got hard and he went home. And so you have two very valid perspectives. Paul says, look, we have a job to do. We're here to encourage the churches. We need people we can count on. We can't take John Mark. He, we cannot count on this guy. 
It's a valid point, right? To, to be able to, to need to count on people and to have faithfulness in these things. But Barnabas says, no, man, we, let's take John Mark. Let's give this guy a second chance. It's going to be okay. Let's take this guy. And it, it gets so sharp. It becomes such a, the word literally means such an uprising. It's, so, it's such a contention by two dudes that love Jesus, love the church, love God's people with different personalities, different outlooks on things, that they just say, we can't, we're not going to travel together anymore. Now, we do know, and this is really important, out of the, the letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians about 10-ish years later, that Paul makes the point, it's a little out of context, but he's making the point saying, he's, he's writing to the Corinthians and saying, myself and Barnabas are still valid apostles. We have a valid ministry. And, and he's, he's making a point to them, don't Barnabas and I have the right, essentially, to live from the gospel and then with that also have a wife too? And the point is this. Barnabas is still growing strong a decade later. He didn't fall off the face of the earth. He didn't become not the servant of the Lord. You can't say, well, he's never mentioned again in the book of Acts. That's a, it's a doctrine from omission, meaning you're trying to make a rule or an a, a interpretation based on something that's not written there. Does that make sense? And if you're going to do that, we have to say that Peter is never mentioned again in the book of Acts, after Acts chapter 15. Bartholomew, as far as we know, other than the voting for the next apostle, which turned out not to be an apostle, Matthias, Matthias is never mentioned again. Bartholomew is never mentioned again. There's a lot of people that are never mentioned again in the book of Acts. So we don't want to go to a weird place and say that, that somehow Barnabas was disqualified or he wasn't involved in the work anymore. No. What you had was this two people that just said, we can't agree on this. And so Paul says, I'm still going to be involved in the work. And he grabs Silas, and he heads north from Jerusalem. And Barnabas says, well, I'm still going to be involved in the work. And he takes John Mark, and he sails west into Cyprus. And then they both begin to encourage the churches as they go. So oftentimes, we're, there can be two believers that love Jesus and love one another, and they're going to be insurmountable. You, just, you cannot continue to walk together. And that's Okay. Because we don't measure the other person, we don't judge them, we still love them, we just say, hey, I see it differently, and I'm not going to be able to continue with you on this matter. They still continue in the work, they're still brethren, and it's really important, uh, especially in where we live today, where it seems like the society just dictates, if you disagree with me, not only do we not talk about it, but I cut you out of my life. And, and the reality is, every single believer, we're going to spend eternity with that person, and sometimes when we're interacting with people in person or online or via text or whatever it is, to remember, I'm sending a message to someone or I'm saying something to someone that I will spend eternity with. And that can help us to be able to maybe temper what we should say or how we should say something. Our goal as Christians is to build the kingdom of heaven and draw near to Jesus. And so Lisa painted that painting out there, to know him and to make him known. They're not trying to have a cute slogan, but that's literally our life's goal, to know God better and to help other people know him. And the way we're going to do that is by being able to overcome insurmountable differences and even doctrinal differences to say, hey, I still love you and I still want the best for you. I just can't go to Phoenicia with you with John Mark. I just can't do it. And I just can't not go without John Mark. So God bless you in your endeavor. And, and then there was growth out of that in the kingdoms. So in chapter 16, we, we're going to pick up with Paul and his journey, and we're going to meet Timothy. Timothy may sound familiar with you because some of the last books, uh, the very last letter, they're not books, they're letters, but uh, Second Timothy is the last letter that we have from Paul that he ever wrote before he was executed by Nero uh, when he was beheaded. And uh, Paul or Timothy becomes a pastor and, and a great comfort. Um, later on, Paul calls him, calls him his son in the faith. Uh, later on, Paul calls Timothy and says, he, uh, he writes and he says, I don't have anyone like Timothy that cares for the churches like I do. And we're not trying to make a comparison or make a doctrine, but think about that. Paul in his letter says, I don't have anybody like Timothy. I don't have anybody like Timothy in, in about the year 65. I don't have anybody like Timothy that cares for the churches like I do. So Timothy is a singular guy. There's something special about this guy. Not because God granted him extra special love or something like that, but because of what we see here, he's got a label I think that's really important and that each one of us could appropriate if we wanted to. 
In Acts chapter 16 and verse 1, it says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went their way through the cities, they delivered them for observance, excuse me, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. And we're going to stop there. So Timothy, and really what I, what I want to talk about essentially today is where does, essentially where does liberty and love meet? Right? Because as Christians, we have Christian liberty. Isn't that what the scriptures tell us? All over the place. We don't look to the law for our righteousness. In other words, our standing before God, our rightness before God, it's not based on works. It's not based on the law. We have liberty in you know, what's often covered in the Bible, which may not apply to us very much, but we have liberty to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Meaning, back in the day, if you had, you had temples, and part of the practice was that the priest would make a sacrifice to you know, whoever, Hermes, whatever particular deity that city was known for worshiping. And they would make a sacrifice, and there were multiple sacrifices, and they would slaughter those sacrifices. And then the meat that was left over from that sacrifice that wasn't given to the deity on an altar or wasn't kept by the priest was then sold by, essentially, just think of it as an outlet center. It was an outlet. You go to like the, the Hermes outlet, and you go and you get the cheap meat that had been offered up to the idol. So the Jews, that was anathema. That was forbidden. You never ate something that had previously been sacrificed to an idol. But for a Greek, you're like, hey, this is cheap meat, and it's, it's pretty quality meat, and it's been blessed by you know, the sex goddess, so I'm all in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have this meat. So when the church people start getting saved, and the Gentiles are like, hey, I'm going to go down to the old uh, you know, temple of Artemis and hook myself up with a French dip, the Jews are like, oh. How can you do that, right? And Paul's saying, look, you have liberty to go do that. So for us, we're like, meat sacrifice, what are you talking about? Well, just imagine if like, you were in a Thai restaurant, you see a Buddha, and you grab the stinking banana off it and start eating it. That's essentially the equivalent of it. So the, Paul says, hey, as a Christian, you have liberty to eat that meat. Because we know that an idol is nothing. There's no power in that idol. There's no religion. Nothing happens to that meat. It doesn't actually become corrupted. There's no evil spirit that enters the meat. So you can go eat that meat. And there were different things that were like that, whether it was circumcision or uh, respect of feast days, all sorts of different things. So the Christian is set free from the law and has liberty. You have liberty. There's, there's, you don't have to have a certain haircut. Right? You don't have to dress a certain way. Now, there's, there's standards of modesty and different things like that that the Bible gives us. But there's no, you, there, you have liberty to have your hair how you want. You have liberty to drive what car you want. You have, you know, you don't have to, you know, maybe you heard people, well, Jesus wouldn't drive a Porsche. You're like, well, how do you know that? I mean, maybe he'd be super into European cars. We have no idea. Right? Well, he wouldn't drive a Porsche because they're too fancy. Well, maybe if he was ministering to a bunch of the Pharisees, he would because they wouldn't accept him if he pulled up in anything less than a Porsche. I'm just making a point that like, we come up with these weird standards and we say, you wouldn't do that dot, dot, dot when they're just standards that are made up. So we have liberty from those standards. We have liberty to drink alcohol. The Bible never says don't drink alcohol. It says don't be a wine bibber. It says, don't be given or addicted to alcohol. Paul says, I, I, I don't let myself fall under the power of anything, uh, you know, these type of things. But you'll never find the word tobacco in the Bible. It's just not there. And you can say, well, the, my, my body's the temple of the Holy Spirit, and so therefore I don't smoke. Well, have you ever been to McDonald's? I mean, let's be honest. When we start using temple of the Holy Spirit for health reasons, we're getting off in the weeds. If you want to eat a McDonald's, you have liberty to eat a McDonald's. If you eat too much of McDonald's and you die, you reap what you sowed. But it wasn't in a way that was, in a sense, that, that you were doing something sinful. So we have to be super careful when we take measurements, when we take things that are important to us, and we make them important to everyone. You have liberty to go and to do what you like, within reason. Obviously, you don't have liberty to do things like kill people. That wouldn't be love. Murdering people is what I should say. You don't have liberty to treat people poorly. 
because that wouldn't be love. We live under the law of love. That's the law that we live by. To live by the law of the Spirit, the Bible calls it, that we're led by the Spirit of God. And by walking in those things is how we find our um, ability and our uh, strengthening to do what God has for us and to be involved with his kingdom. So you have liberty. But there is a place where liberty can usurp love, right? One of the places that Paul uses, because it's so prevalent, is the meat sacrifice to idols. I'll use alcohol. You have the right to drink alcohol. It's fine. If you have, say, a person over to dinner, and they are a recovering alcoholic, and you whip out the wine, which is fine for you to drink, and that person says, hey, you know what? Ah, could we put that away? Like, that's been a thing in my life for a long time, and it's really kind of hard for me to deal with. And you say, well, then you don't have to drink it, but I have liberty. Blah, 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 blah. You know? How's the fish? Right? You're, it's incredibly rude, right? Not only is it rude, but you're now putting your liberty. This person has told you, I have a weakness for this. This is something that's had power over me in my life before. Will you help me with this? And I've effectually said, no, because I have liberty, and my liberty is more important than your weakness. Now I've left the law of liberty and the law of love, and I've moved into selfishness. And Romans 14 says that I've used my liberty literally to destroy what God is building. Okay? So Timothy here is a really amazing example because he gets circumcised so that he can minister to other people. And we'll talk about that. We'll camp on that in it for a second. But the first thing that we see that marks out Timothy, that makes him, I don't know if I want to say special, but that, that, that brings something to light about who he is as a person, is it says that there was a disciple there named Timothy. Now in Acts chapter 15, 11 times the word brother is used, meaning brother or sister in Christ in the Greek, literally. But now there's another word used, and it's disciple, and it's a different word. And this might be a little bit, uh, it is, it's disputed a bit, and I'd be glad to talk to anybody afterwards who'd like to. Excuse me. But being saved and being a disciple are two different things. A saved person is a person who has put their trust in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has attached themselves to that person, and they have become a child of God through the blood of Christ. It's a free gift, Right? That's what a saved person is. A disciple literally translates means a learner. Someone who is learning and attempting to be like their teacher. That's what a disciple is. So Timothy isn't only a brother in the Lord. Timothy has made a decision. I'm going to be a disciple. And as a disciple, his goal is then to learn about Christ. I got saved at an outdoor tent meeting when I was 16 years old. And I've talked about this before, so forgive me if you've heard it before. I only have one testimony, or I try to share other stories. <laughs> so when I got saved, it was not a, it was a miracle, but it was not like if you read important people's testimonies, where they get saved and they're just like, I got filled with the Spirit and I never sinned again. I never cursed again. I never drank again. I never fornicated again. I never looked at porn again. I never said a no word again. I never, I just started levitating when I got saved and I haven't stopped yet. Right? And God bless those people. I'm not mocking those people, but you'll meet people and, and some, somehow they have this conversion experience and I don't understand it all, but it's in their opinion, this, it was just, Life was completely radically changed, and, and I've known people, genuine people, that like kicked heroin in five minutes and just got saved and dropped out of a gang and ended up you know, going to prison, and God protected them in prison, and they were like cruising around, white dudes cruising with black dudes in prison. I mean, just radical testimonies and, and, and that kind of stuff. That was not mine. I got saved. I said, Lord, I need you in my life, clearly. And then... I went to church, that was a Saturday night, I went to church on Sunday, and I quickly discovered, like, I don't like church. I'm into this Jesus idea, I'm into this idea that I can be saved from my sin, but this is really boring, 
I'm not super into the music, and I don't, I know I'm supposed to come, but I'm really not into it. And so what happened was, I would kind of sporadically go to church here and there, but there are these groups, this group of college dudes, and whether I went to church or not, they would always invite me about 100 pounds ago to play basketball. And I would play basketball and, you know, play soccer, as much as I hate to admit that, <laughs> ultimate frisbee, you know, whatever it was. And I would, I would do those things. And the thing was, I was not one to Christ through the physical word of God. I really wasn't. It wasn't that I, I, I read my Bible every day and I had these great revelations and I was just like, oh, this is... No, it was the fact that these four-ish guys, they just loved me. And they cared about me. And they'd invite me to go do these things. And then we'd always get like frozen yogurt or something afterwards because I actually have good frozen yogurt in California. And we would, you know, it, and they would just talk about, hey, this is what church was about today. And they'd kind of give me the simplified version of it. That, you know, God loves you and there's, you know, stuff, whatever it might be. And through that care, that won me to Christ. And it was a very long transformation. So, and it's still happening, obviously. But when I was about 21, so five years later, I kind of reached this point in my life where I really had been like, I'm kind of done with Jesus. I'm kind of done following Jesus. It's hard. You know, I was just kind of writing love notes from church to the world like, this is really boring. Wish I was with you guys. You know, just I don't even know what to do with this. This is the same hymn we sung last week. You know, just I'm not, I'm not saying this is how we should think. I'm saying this is where I was at five years into my walk with Christ. If you want to, it was more of a stroll or a meander with Christ. And I went to this uh, Bible seminar thing, and I didn't want to go at all, actually, not even a little bit. But it was actually easier to go to this three-day Bible seminar thing with three two-hour lectures a day than it was to not go and have to answer to my pastors that would want to question me. And like, so if you're wondering, like, why doesn't James call me when I don't show up? I don't want to bother you. I really don't. Like, if you want to show up, you will. And if you don't, like, I'm cool with that. I, I like it when people show up, but I'm not into hassling people. So if you feel like my pastor doesn't care about me because he doesn't call me, that's not the case at all. Your pastor cares about you, but doesn't want to bother you and feels because of my own personal experience. So if you haven't shown up for a while or you're listening online and I haven't called you, I love you. You're free to come if you'd like to. So it's easier just to go to this thing and suffer for 72 hours than to have to answer and then like have a reason why I don't want to go and then they want to work through it with me and I'm like, I don't want to work through it. I just don't like you. I just know that I'm supposed to do this and so this is what I'm doing. You know, this whole like dynamic that's going on in my heart. Not a good place, but that's where I was at. And I ended up riding down with this guy. His name's Chris Sloan. I rode with him because he had just bought a brand new Accord in like 2000 or 19, whatever it was. Anyway, we, we rode down there and, uh, and he's a new believer and he's all amped. He's like, we're going to this Bible conference. This is going to be legit. I'm so excited. I'm like, I'm not into this at all. And he's like, oh, who knows what the Lord will do? And I go, I know what the Lord will do. He'll bore me for three times in the next three days. I was really just getting super just cynical. And just like, I think I'm pretty much done with this. And so, but I knew, like, you're supposed to pay attention, right? That's what you're supposed to do. And that's what you're supposed to do, right? <laughs> When, when somebody's talking about the Bible, that's what you're supposed to do, right? That, that's, so I know I'm supposed to pay attention. So, you know, it's, it's like clockwork orange with like propping my eyes open like, oh, okay. And I'm, I'm watching this and I'm trying to pay attention. I'm trying to absorb it and whatever. And I'm really getting nothing and it's really difficult. But then this guy who's doing these teachings, he reads this first. And it's a verse out of, uh, uh, of, uh, out of the Kings, um, the two psalmists, David writing to Solomon. And I'm paraphrasing this. David's about to die, and he writes to Solomon, his son, and he's, or he tells him, it's recorded for us, and he says, look, as my son, I'm commanding you, I'm asking you to, to obey the Lord and to do what he tells you to do, because if, he, if you do that, there'll be a prosperity to your life, not necessarily financial or health prosperity, but there'll be a life, a, 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 ju a rejuvenation to your life, and to walk with the Lord and obey his statutes, and you know, this is under the law, and to do that. And for me, at that moment in my life, I'm not, this isn't my counsel to you, but for me, what the Holy Spirit said to me was, James, you need to follow me or you need to go away. 
That's what you need to do. That was the word of the Lord to me, straight up, 100%. Either stop going to church and just live your life or be all in. But your, your little fence thing that you're doing is worthless to me. It's absolutely worthless. And uh, as it's been said before by others, you end up with too much of Christ in you to enjoy the world, and you end up too much of the world in you to enjoy Christ. And it's one of the most miserable places in the world. And, and, uh, and so that, that was what the Lord spoke to me in my, in my seat in that moment. And it was kind of devastating. It was uh, kind of uh, soul-crushing. But I felt like the Lord was saying, like, you have to choose because what you have now is it's, it's worthless. And so I just remember, I just kind of bowed my head in that moment, and I prayed, and I said, I said, Lord, I'll follow you my entire life, but you have to do it in my life. Because I love myself, and I love my sin, and there's no way I can just make a commitment, like, I'll be a good boy from here on out. There's just, that's, that hasn't been my experience for five years. It wasn't my experience before I was saved. It's never been my experience. I need your power to walk with you. And to, to encourage me and, and to do these things because I can't, I can't be what I'm, whatever it is I'm supposed to be. I can't do that. And I just remember just, just giving that to the Lord and then just kind of the, the thing ended and just kind of going, okay, well, I guess it's time to follow the Lord and we'll see how that works out. But the bottom line is, I'm, you know, I'm 44 now, so that was 24 years ago. Is that math right? Kind of. Um, 23 years ago. And he's never let me down. Sure, I've had my discouragements, I've had anger, uh, disappointment, but those were all things, all those emotions I experienced because I expected something that he never promised. And see, the thing is about being a disciple, it's not that you're signing up and saying, I will always do everything right. I will always make the right decision. What you're signing up to say is, I want to learn about you and do what's right, but I need your power to to do that. And so Timothy is just a person, and he's not, he's a special person into what he let God do in his life. But he's not a special person because, don't you love the wording? He was a disciple. He wasn't the disciple, he was a disciple. An offer and a possibility for every single one of us at any given time to make that decision and to say, Lord, I'll be your disciple. I'm going to learn about you. And in that discipleship, what are we learning about? We're not disciples of Christianity. We're not disciples of Ocean Beach Christian Fellowship. We're not disciples of James. We're not disciples of Peter or Paul. We're, not, we're disciples of Jesus. And that's really important when we consider who we're disciples of and what we're being discipled about. Because we're not learning how this church does it or that church does it. We're not learning about this tradition or that tradition. We're learning about Jesus and who he is. Because he's the only thing that keeps us going. A ministry doesn't keep us going. If it does, eventually it fails. Or if it doesn't fail, it gets old or whatever, right? We can't trust in a ministry. We can't trust in a man. We can't trust in, we can only trust Christ. And so when we, we stop for a second and you think about that, what is it to be a disciple of Jesus? Does it happen with other people? Well, sure it does, right? Because other people know more stuff than we do. I heard a really smart person say, you know what you need to disciple someone? You need to know one thing that they don't. That's all you need to know. Every week when you meet with them, you just need to know one thing that you're going to pass along to them. And then you can study the next week to figure something else out. We don't have to have all our stuff together. That's a, that's a side note. But the point is that we're just introducing and bringing people to Jesus. And when you're a disciple of Jesus and not another person or a ministry or something like that, it's really, it's, it's life-giving. Because Jesus is the originator of life and the originator of love. So we're not learning a system. We're not learning, I mean, there's doctrines, right? We, that he's the son of God, that he's both God and man. We have doctrines that we learn, but they're about the person. And so as we grow to know the person and learn about the person, we become like him. I just wrote down a few of his titles. He's the man of sorrows. We get to learn about that Jesus had sorrow. He cared about human beings to the point of crying. That he wept, that he knew what it was to be depressed when it says in the garden that, uh, I think uh, different translations vary, but he essentially says that he was distressed or troubled. It's literally he was depressed. 
He knew what it was to just be radical sadness and oppression upon the heart because he's about to pay for sin and what that would cost him. He knew what it was to be hungry. He knew you know, he was a man of sorrows. People even likened him to Jeremiah when he's talking to the fellows and he says, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some people say you're Jeremiah. Why? Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. He's the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He's never done with us. If you're a believer in Jesus, there's no condemnation to you. He's nothing against you. He's the friend of sinners. One of his few autobiographical statements, he's, the, he's, he's um, meek and lowly. He has great power, meekness. He has great power, but he, he's restrained. He's lowly. He doesn't make himself out to be dominant. He works miracles. Isaiah calls him the wonderful counselor. We could tell him anything, and he's always got the best advice. Not only is he the wonderful counselor, he's the mighty God. He's the everlasting father, proof of the Trinity. He's the prince of peace. And I've, I've been thinking about that, the prince of peace, because it, it rolls off the tongue nice, right? They both start with P, and that's great. But what does it mean that he's a prince of peace? Does it mean that he is a person of royalty that administers peace? Maybe, because he does. Or does it mean that he is the son of the kingdom that is peace? And I guess he's that too. But he's the prince of peace. He's the redeemer, the lover of our souls, the good shepherd. He's the Lord of glory, the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of the earth. He's the morning star. He's the executor of justice. He's the one that knows the heart. He's the provider of every good gift, the one who righteously gives and he takes away. He's the knower of every hair on our head. He's the Lamb of God, the propitiation for sin, and the definition of love. So when we become a disciple, it's not the, the signing up for learning this system or that system or this denomination or that system. Are you a Calvary disciple or are you an AG disciple? Are you a Baptist disciple? Those are just things that we gravitate to. That's all denominations are. They're just sets of things. You say, oh, hey, I can identify with these guys. You know, we're, I, I'm a Calvary Chapel guy more than anything just because that's where I came from. If Calvary Chapel came out tomorrow and they were like, well, actually, we think Mary's the fourth part of the Godhead, I'd be like, well, I guess we're not Calvary anymore. And guess what we do? Meet next Sunday. But it's just, that's who we identify with. Other people identify with the Baptist. It's fine. It's completely fine. Because we're not being disciples of Calvary Chapel, I hope. We're not disciples of, of Baptists. We're not disciples of, of uh, Assembly of God. We're not disciples of the community church. We're disciples of Jesus. And here you have this, if you want to call it a title or a label, whatever you like to call it. Paul meets Timothy and he, he is a disciple. He doesn't do everything right. We, know, we actually know a lot about Timothy. Timothy's really sensitive. Multiple times, if I was Timothy, I'm like, Paul, calm down with your letters. Multiple times in, in, in Paul's letters, he talked about Tim crying. And, and having, being emotional, having emotion. And, and he was an emotional guy. He dealt with a lot of emotion, dealt with a lot of grief, and he wept. He has to tell Timothy multiple times, hey, stir up the gift that's inside of you. Keep going, man. Don't give up, man. He has to tell, we know Timothy that was often infirm. He was a sickly person. Paul has to tell him, hey, drink some wine because you're sick all the time with your stomach. Timothy is not this, you know, robust amazing 15,000 person, perfectly in shape, skinny jean pastor. He's just an emotional, physically weak disciple of Jesus Christ. And he was in one of the hardest places to minister in the world. In fact, Paul is encouraging him, and he says, he tells him, he goes, hey, where you're ministering, we know they're all barbarians, and they do whatever they want to do. So God takes this precious soul who's got all this infirmity and says, I'm going to put you in the hardest place in the world to minister. I'm going to do something great through you. And it was simply because he was a disciple. He was a learner. He's special, but he's not. And it's something that's available for each one of us to learn about Jesus, to seek him in his word, to seek him in fellowship with one another, to be involved with what God is doing. 
In Luke 9, Jesus makes some very interesting stipulations. It's this, I referred to it already. If you recall, he sits down with the fellas and he says, who do, who do people say that I am? And they and say, oh, you know, John the Baptist from the dead, or you're Jeremiah, you're Elijah. And he says, well, who do you guys say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, this is all in, actually in the Matthew account. And Jesus says, you're right, but you didn't come up with that flesh and blood. My father showed you that. And then from that point, and this is the part Luke takes up, and so does uh, Matthew, uh, Peter, well, I should say, Peter says, uh, or, I'm sorry, Jesus says, I'm going to die, I'm going to get tortured, and I'm going to be delivered up. And that's the part where Peter, it says he, he took the Lord, the word there means to shake. So it wasn't like Peter like pulled him aside like, oh, Lord, come here, come on, let's talk about this. No, he grabs Jesus. Peter grabs Jesus and says, that'll never happen to you, Lord, which is a little an irony there for you. And Jesus addresses that, and he begins to speak to them of what it takes to be a disciple. And the stipulation is giving, he's only speaking to the 12. He doesn't say this is how a person gets saved. We know how a person gets saved. A person gets saved by grace through faith. But he says, if you're gonna, he says, if you're gonna follow me, we'll go ahead and read it so we can see it in black and white or red or white, depending on your Bible. In Luke chapter 9. It's interesting, and I like to point out this side point. Matthew talks about the fact that, that Peter tells the Lord no, but Luke does not. There's something very singular about the Gospel of Luke and also in the book of Acts. If you go through all the synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you go through all the Gospels that kind of talk about mostly the same stories, the same events, Luke religiously leaves out the negative parts about people. He, does, like, he doesn't cover the fact that Peter grabs the Lord and says, that'll never happen to you. I think it's interesting. I think it's noteworthy. I don't know if there's a, a big application from that, but the Holy Spirit through Luke leaves out so much bad stuff. Jesus sinking, or I mean, uh, Peter sinking in the water, Peter shooting his mouth off, all sorts of stuff doesn't get covered in the book of Luke. Maybe it's because we don't need to know every bad thing. It happens to every person. But he says here in chapter uh, 9 and verse 23, he verse 22 is where he tells me he's going to die. But verse 23, he says this, And he said to all, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He's talking about coming after him. He's not saying if anybody will believe in me. He's not saying if anybody will forget, wants the forgiveness of sins, he says, if anybody's going to come with me in my journey, if anyone's going to be a learner of me, if anyone is going to be my disciple, he says, there is a cost. Salvation is what? A free gift. All through the scripture, salvation is labeled as a free gift of God. Irrevocable in Romans chapter 9. The gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. But he says, but if you're going to come after me, Something's going to have to happen. A couple somethings. Number one, he says, you have to deny yourself. And you have to take up your cross and you have to follow me. You know, hangings were a, a form of execution in the Roman time. The guillotine was around. The headsman axe was around. Stonings were around. Those were all ways that people were executed in that region in that day. But Jesus picks the slowest, most excruciating, and most shameful way that anybody was ever executed. On the cross, you were naked, and you were, and it took, you know, typically it took about three, three and a half days because you didn't die from your wounds. You typically died from either where the, the rib cage pulls apart and the sternum gets separated. And the pericardium around the heart rips. And so that fluid and so forth begins. You, you start to get cardiac tamponade and it crushes your heart. All your limbs come out of joint. But most people died of thirst. And so everybody just walked by and that's, that's how it happened. So if, if Jesus had said everybody has to take up their guillotine and follow me, that would be quick and easy, wouldn't it? Because it's just, I mean, guillotine is pretty much the most humane way you can kill someone. You kick them down, you pull the cord, their head goes into a basket, and it's done. But it's pretty crazy because denying ourselves 
is perhaps the most difficult thing in the world to do, isn't it? It'd be really easy if someone came through the door and just shot a bunch of us and we died. Because you'd be like, oh, no, oh, Jesus, what's up? Right? It'd be hard for all of us that got left behind. It'd be tragic and it'd be difficult. But it is significantly easier to die for Jesus than it is to live for him. Because to actually live for Christ and to be a disciple, he says you have to pick up every day the most shameful, slow death that has ever existed. And that death is to deny yourself. Because nothing good comes out of our nature as sinners. The sinful nature brings about jealousy and anger and evil and all sorts of things. And if we're going to be a disciple, not if we're going to be saved, but if we're going to be a disciple, useful for the kingdom, learning about Jesus, being conformed to his image, we have to pick up our cross daily. And we have to follow him. We're learners. We're saying, every day I'm going to learn about you. Every day I'm going to, re- I'm going to listen to your Holy Spirit. And when I don't, I'm going to admit that I didn't. It's a whole lot easier to lose your head than it is to let someone wrong you. And so he says, this is how it's going to take. This is what's going to take in your life. Salvation is free, but discipleship costs everything. So why is it worth it? What's the point of it? If I can just be saved and get my fire insurance and live like hell, then why, why should it matter? Why don't I just be rude to who I want to be rude to? Say what I want to say, fornicate with what I, who I want to fornicate with, drink what I want to drink, smoke what I want to smoke, and do whatever I want to do. What is the value of discipleship? The value of learning about Christ is that he is actually life. And intrinsically, many of us, if not all of us, we know this. We know what it is to walk in rebellion. We know how miserable it is to walk in bitterness and unforgiveness. We know how miserable it is to be addicted And to want so badly to not do something, whether it's drugs or just thought processes. Haven't you ever thought to yourself, why do I always think this way? Why do I always accuse? Why do I always rage? Why do I always fear? Why why can't I just stop doing that? You ever thought that? So has every human on the planet. And so discipleship, as we're walking into the saying, here's that old nature. Here's that addiction, that thought process, that desire. That's not from you, Lord. I give, I'm giving that to you. I'm dead to that. That has no power over me anymore. Discipleship is walking in the truths that God has given us. And you might say, I don't know all the truths. It's fine. You just walk in what God has given you. And being discipled or being in a discipleship program is just something where you can learn to walk with Jesus, learn the tools, if you want to call them that, to how we can continue with him. And in discipleship and walking with him, in denying ourselves, that actually leads to life, the life that Christ has for us, an eternal life, something far superior to a, to a life of just gratifying the flesh or living in the moment or YOLO or carpe diem or whatever the slogan of the day is. And so here we have Timothy, and that's, he's doing this. He's picking up his cross. Jesus goes on to say this. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What's the point of that? Is he saying that if you get saved and continue in sin, you get unsaved? No, he's not saying that. Your soul is who you are. right? It's your seat of emotion. It's what's being saved. You know, you ever wonder why the Bible says that we are saved? We got saved through Christ. We will be saved someday in heaven, and we are currently being saved. All three tenses are used in the Bible to talk about salvation. So when it's talking about us being saved, it's not that we're not saved enough, and then we'll become more saved, and then one day when we're saved enough, then we'll be saved. The idea is I am being saved. I'm being changed. Well, what's being changed? My soul is. Who I am, what I like, what I dislike, what I think about things, my worldview, my consciousness. It's, it's the word suki in the Greek, where we get our word psyche. Psychology actually literally is the study of the soul, uh, if you care. So anyway, you have this, uh, this, this event that occurs, and as we're dealing with things in our soul, we're being changed, and we're being conformed to the image of Christ. So if I'm doing things that serve me, 
right? If, if I treat people in a way to serve myself, if I use people for my advantage, if I treat people poorly, if I'm rude to people, if I'm unkind to people, we've talked about this, those things cannot be in heaven, right? There will be no greed in heaven. There will be no manipulation in heaven. There will be no self-service in heaven. So if I am a believer that has given my soul to serving myself, when I stand before Christ, what will happen to me? He will mercifully remove from me what I have built. Does that make sense? He will take from me all the selfishness and all the greed and all the wrath and all the fear that I've developed myself around, and he will remove it. The Bible says through fire. Whatever that means sounds unpleasant. It will be burnt away. So Jesus, if we look at what he's saying, he says, look, if, you, if we look to save our lives, insist on our rights, insist on what we want, insist on how we're going to walk, and what I mean by that is when we would say no to God, all that stuff will be saved and it'll be removed from us by fire. And 1 Corinthians 3.10 says that we, that passage says that that person who builds with wood, hay, and stubble their whole life shall be saved, but by fire. So what's happening right now, if I seek to constantly preserve me, myself, my old nature, I will lose that all. But if I am sowing to the Spirit, if I'm building with gold and perfect, or precious stones and silver, all the different uh, metaphors that are in the Scripture, if I'm walking according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh, something else is happening, and I'm actually losing my old nature life, but I'm gaining the life of Christ. And it comes through being a disciple. That does not come through being saved. Being saved is how you start that journey. But being a disciple is how you continue that journey. And so we get to decide every day what image we're being conformed into. We get to decide every day what the decisions we make now will decide what we're like in a week from now. And the decisions we make in a week from now, that will decide what we're like in a year from now. And those decisions will decide what we're like in a decade from now. And pretty soon we just are the culmination of our decisions. And that's very scary, that every single decision we make counts, that, that we have the ability to bring life to ourselves through Christ. It's Christ's life. It's not our life. And to others with every decision. And we have the power to, to take it and to, to exchange death for it with our attitudes and our thoughts and all those things. Have you ever tried to stop yourself from having a bad attitude? It's pretty hard, isn't it? A bad attitude feels really good because you feel like, I deserve this. You did something. Someone did something. Something happened that was clearly completely out of my control because I would never have a bad, a bad attitude except that I'm a victim of something. And then, and then the Holy Spirit says, you have a bad attitude. And you're like, yeah. And I'm going to keep rocking it. Right? This can be a daily or a moment-by-moment -moment, uh, journey, can it? Conflict. A conflict of the soul in a conversation. And, you, and all of a sudden, you, you can find yourself getting kind of worked up, kind of a little chapped, kind of like, you shouldn't have said that to me. And I don't like that now. And now I'm going to get, getting a little ready to handle business here. And the Holy Spirit says, you probably shouldn't handle business. And you're going, I want to because they wronged me. I have every right to. Right? You ever felt that way? And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. You have every right to do that. But you can't, you're not going to be my disciple. You have every right to do that. But you're not going to be my disciple. And so the more we choose the bad attitude, we know what that's like. The farther we get in bitterness and anger, which typically leads to like a guilt, and then we begin to loathe ourselves because we know what we've become is so far from what God had for us. And then we get hopeless. And then we stop coming to church. We stop talking to our church friends. We start, usually because it's so readily available to us, we start engaging more in the entertainment that we have available at the tips of our fingers. And then if things get really bad, we can bring in substances to deal with things. And it's just a crazy spiral. The funny thing is, is that's what the world calls freedom. 
I have the freedom to drown my sorrows. I have the freedom to be inebriated, to not deal with my life. What a great freedom. And that just leads so many good places, doesn't it? It's death. It's absolute death. And so Jesus comes along and says, follow me. It's going to cost you everything, but you're going to gain everything. Timmy takes it to quite an quite a impressive place. Back in Acts chapter 16, he says, it says this, verse 3. Paul wanted to take Timothy to accompany him. You're like, oh, wow, what a great opportunity. This is great. And he took him and circumcised him. Excuse me? Timmy's a full-grown man. And you got to wonder because it says that he circumcised him. So is that hyperbole in the sense that he just had him circumcised, like they took him to the, took him to the priest? There aren't, there aren't like Greek doctors where you roll down to their sterile room and they whip out a scalpel and some you know, lidocaine and perhaps some good opiates afterwards. No, there's like a bronze knife somewhere in like someone's backyard. Right? When the babies were circumcised, that was at eight days old in the Jewish tradition, and the priest did it. So there's no, like, clinic, is my point. So either Paul, I mean, I'm not trying to get crass, but stood there and handled his manhood and circumcised him, or some priest did, or some, one of the brothers was like, oh, yeah, I used to do that when I worked. In, <laughs> I was a Levite. I'm a, I'm a stud at this. Let's do this thing. I got my little circumcision knife right here. You know, if you're Tim, you're like... I'm going to need a minute. <laughs> if you're Tim, you're like, uh, I know we're not supposed to be drunkards, but maybe I could like hit the bottle a little bit before this. Paul would be like, you'll bleed too much. You can't do that. Like, I'm okay with that. No, this is like a major event. And if you think about it, if you're Tim, you're like, well, wait a minute. Who's going to know? I mean, like, honestly, who's going to know? Apparently, somebody asked him because they knew he wasn't circumcised. You ever wonder how Paul knew that in the beginning? Like, hey, Timmy, I really want to take you on this journey. Here's the thing. There's going to be a bunch of Jews. And even though I just fought for this for weeks, that you don't have to be circumcised to be saved, because we're going to be ministering to Jews and they know who your father is, and there's a good chance that you haven't been circumcised, I'm going to go ahead and need you to get circumcised as a grown man so that you can be in the ministry with me. So somebody asked him. Hey, Timothy, have you been circumcised? Can you imagine getting that question at church? Like, uh, I feel like we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> right? It's a very private thing. That's, that's it's something that, that realistically shouldn't have anything to do with what they're doing, should it? He has the right to not be circumcised. And he could have insisted on that. He could have said, you know what? Here's the thing. I'm willing to do a lot of things. I'm not willing to do that. That's a pain I will not endure for God's kingdom. I have the right to not have to go through that. And that's the thing about ministry. You do. You have the right to not go through hard times. But if you're going to be involved with what God is doing, you have to waive it. Or you just can't be his disciple. Or you'll be less effective at the least. So Timothy is at this place. He's a special, not special guy who says, you know what, if that's what it takes to reach people, if that's what it's going to take for me to be a part of this thing that God is doing, this miracle of life in Christ, then let's do this thing. And I'll embarrass myself and, and be naked in front of at least one other brother who has to handle my junk and cut my foreskin off. This, this is, I'm not trying to be crass. I'm just, I mean, think through this. Think what that would be like. What are you guys going to do? We're going to go stand in the back. I'm going to get circumcised. I'll be right back. Probably walking a little slower. You know, that's the reality. And he says, I am willing to do that so that people can find Christ. And this isn't a guilt trip sermon. This isn't a you better find the worst thing you can possibly think of and go do that sermon. That's not what I'm saying. This is a you should do what God tells you to do so that you can be involved with, with what God's called you to do. Because anything less is going to cost you your life, like we've discussed about. Not maybe your physical life. But it's going to cost you the absolute best that God has for you. And instead, we'll end up, all of us, will end up in mediocrity. 
in a life that says, I want more, but never finds it. In a life that knows it has great power, but never is part of it. In a life that says, I know that God has a great work, but never experiences it. It's a sad life. And there's no condemnation in that. It's just a sad life. I lived that life. I lived it for five years before, I, before the Lord really got a hold of my heart. I lived it, I've lived it since then. But the reality is that you have a question to ask yourself, and that is, do you want to be a disciple and, and gain life? Whatever that means for you, whatever God's telling you to do, I'm not making a standard for you. I'm not saying it's circumcision or our discipleship program or coming to this church. Or, I'm not saying any of that, but I'm saying I know that if you want to be a disciple, that there's something that God's probably calling you to get rid of and probably something that God's calling you to bring into your life. And only you can make that happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. Only you can. You have all the power and you have all the rights. Jesus is amazingly gentle. He, he, he never forces us to do anything. It's got to be a choice. And so I just encourage you. Timothy goes on to do amazing things. He goes on to live an incredibly difficult, tear-jerking, wonderful life. And all of us have that opportunity. And as, as, like, as maybe as, as, as churchy as it sounds, it literally starts today. In this very moment, in this very decision. Are you going to follow Jesus? Or are you going to half gluteus max it? What's it going to be? Because we all have the option. And he has, he has great things for you. So Timothy, he goes on here. There's some fruit from it. At verse 4, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for the observance the decisions that, uh, excuse me, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So he goes through, he does what has to be done by the power of the Spirit. He gets circumcised. He joins up with these guys and they bring a letter. And isn't it interesting that the letter is both freeing and limiting, excuse me, freeing and limiting to their liberties. Because the letter says you don't have to follow the law to be saved or as Gentiles to be sanctified, but we are asking you to do these things for the sake of other people. Isn't it funny that when they send a letter that is both limiting and libertarian and loving, what happens? The churches were strengthened. See, saying no to self doesn't weaken the churches. It doesn't take away who you are. It doesn't make you of no report or repute. It doesn't detract from you in any way. You don't lose your identity. You don't become unknown or somehow lose out or your life shrinks or you become less interested or, or something like that. It, in fact, strengthens who you are. It strengthens faith and it, faith and it increases. Giving liberty away for the sake of love and for the sake of the gospel will only grow you, and it will grow those around you. It's a pretty awe-inspiring to think that the Christian church, in the way it's designed by God, as Ephesians 4 tells us, is that every joint supplies, and that as every single believer supplies to the church, the church builds itself up in love. God could have made it so that we don't ever have to interact, so that you don't have to come to church. Well, you don't have to anyway, but to, to grow. You don't have to come to church. You don't have to get into the Word. You don't have to pay attention to anybody. He could have made it where just every morning Jesus pops into your house for an hour. You kind of dialogue. He gives you some suggestions and then whoops you later if you don't do them. He could have introduced that way, but he didn't. Instead, what he did, he said, I'm going to take a bunch of billions over the course of history of dysfunctional people, I'm going to stick them in groups, and they're going to be responsible to help each other. And we have this wild thing called the church. And that each one of us possesses the gifting and the power and the calling to help each one of us every day. That we literally get to help each one of us to heaven or to hell every day. And it's just a, just a tremendously scary responsibility but it's a freeing responsibility when we decide to take it on and to let God work it through us. So I just encourage you, today's a great day to decide to follow Jesus. Today's a great day to accept him in your heart if you haven't before, to say, yeah, I need that forgiving stream of blood. I need that sacrifice for my sins. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace. Thank you for this, uh, the examples we have of the, the folks, uh, the men and women that went before us as your servants. And Lord, I pray that we would be those bold enough to let you give us the power to do what you called us to do, to give us life. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts and our community and that you would do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think. And we pray that we'd see people get saved. We pray that we would, we ourselves would be honest with you and repentant in front of you. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to disciple us, bring us uh, nearer to yourself, and grow us. Help us help one another uh, to invite you and to be open to your spirit. Lord, thanks for being good to us. We appreciate it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to pray, feel free to come up afterwards.